The Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 20, beginning at verse 13. We'll be reading through verse 30 this evening. I will remind you once again that these stories are actually much longer than the sections we're looking at for individual sermons. It's just a matter of practical reality. We don't want to cover 50 or 60 verses in one sermon. It would be unduly long. Uh, But I want to encourage you as you're reading these passages at home to go ahead and bring the lens out a bit and read at least the whole chapter together. You'll see that it fits together uh, in ways that brings uh, greater meaning and understanding into your thinking. 1 Kings chapter 20, beginning at verse 13, the word of the Lord. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, by whom? He said, thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, Who shall begin the battle? He answered, You. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. And after them he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. And they went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths, he and the 32 kings who helped him. The servants of the governors of the districts went out first. And Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, Men are coming out from Samaria. He said, If they have come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they have come out for war, take them alive. So these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts, and the army that followed them, and each struck down his man. The Syrians fled, And Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring, the king of Syria will come up against you. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, their gods are gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings, each from his post, and put commanders in their places, and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse, and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. The people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, 
but the Syrians filled the country. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore I will give you all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. But on the seventh day the battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck down the Syrians, a hundred thousand foot soldiers in one day. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 14. We'll be reading through verse 29 this evening. The word of our God. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please turn with me once again back to 1 Kings chapter 20, beginning at verse 13, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. You shall not 
put the Lord your God to the test. That's what the book of Deuteronomy tells us. And in Deuteronomy, it really is focused on what happened around Massa, that that is a location, where the people of God were grumbling and complaining against the Lord and even questioning whether or not the Lord was in their midst. And so the Lord rebuked them, but he also gave them water from the rock. That is, the Lord graciously provided for them while giving them this solemn warning. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus famously quotes this verse while he's being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Uh, The devil had taken him up to a pinnacle of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, go ahead and jump. Right? Cast yourself down. Because the Bible says wonderful promises about you. He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus responded to this twisting, this misuse of God's word, by quoting this verse from Deuteronomy. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And just this morning we saw that Jesus called the Pharisees and the scribes who had come to him and said, hey, won't you give us just a little bit more evidence, right? Well, why don't you do a sign for us? And Jesus said, you are an evil and adulterous generation that is seeking for a sign, and no sign will be given for you. That is, we are never in a place to make demands of God or to put him to the test. Nevertheless, that does not mean that the Lord is somehow shy or slack about showing evidence about who he is and what he does on behalf of his people. In fact, the Lord sometimes does that in quiet ways and sometimes in astonishingly dramatic ways. The Lord delights to show that he is strong on behalf of those who trust him. And even when there's no one trusting him, he delights to make clear that he is Yahweh, the living God who controls everything. Indeed, the Lord is committed to making his own name and his character known among the nations, and he remains committed to making his name and character known among his own people. Uh, In tonight's passage, we see the Lord doing this at, frankly, what is a rather surprising time in Israel's history. The wicked king and queen of Israel are actually among the most notorious rulers in all of history, not just in Jewish history, right? That the names of Ahab and Jezebel are bywords for wicked rulers. And it turns out that Ahab is the most wicked king, not only in the north in Israel's history, but also throughout all of Judah as well. Even after the Lord has dramatically revealed himself on Mount Carmel, answering Elijah's prayer with fire, clearly demonstrating that he was God and he alone, Ahab and Jezebel refuse to repent. They do not humble themselves. They do not turn from their wicked ways. In fact, Jezebel is still bent on getting Elijah killed. And they don't turn back to God at all. And in fact, the people don't turn either. You know, when the fire dramatically falls on Mount Carmel, the people are overwhelmed in the moment. And so they cry out, the Lord, he is God. 
The Lord, he is God. But their lives remain completely unchanged. They go back to their wicked ways, and most of them go back to their idolatry. Now, if you and I were telling the story, the story of when God is going to show up and demonstrate that he is strong on behalf of his people, surely we would tell the story like this. There's a small remnant of really godly people who love and seek the Lord, and God comes and vindicates them. But that's not what we have in tonight's passage. In tonight's passage, the Lord acts three times on behalf of Israel, simply that the people might know that he is Yahweh. That is, he's the Lord. Uh, we're going to look at tonight's passage under three main headings. First, that you might know. Second, a gracious warning. And third, that you might know, part two. It's not a very clever outline, but you're going to see why I want to include that phrase twice. First, that you may know. Second, a gracious warning. And third, that you may know, part two. We begin where we left off last week, with the Lord making himself known to Ahab. Now please remember that Ben-Hadad, that is the Syrian king, has amassed a humongous army. It's an army that completely dwarfs anything that Ahab can put out into the field, and he's sieging Samaria, which is the, the capital of the northern kingdoms. Uh, we see under Ben-Hadad there are actually 32 additional kings. We call them vassal kings because they're, they're all supporting Ben-Hadad. He's the big king. And they've all gathered with this massive army to besiege Samaria and take Israel captive. In fact, the situation is so bad that Ahab is essentially offered to surrender and to become a vassal king himself. Right? He, he's calling Ben-Hadad, my lord. He's not pounding his chest and going, you're not going to take Israel. He recognizes how fragile his situation is. He offers the silver and gold of his palace to Ben-Hadad. Something as a vassal king, he's going to have to send him money year after year. And occasionally he's going to have to send him Israeli troops to help fight Ben-Hadad's wars. He's humbling himself in a profound way. But it turns out that Ben-Hadad is a drunken madman. Not just a pagan, I mean, even for a pagan king, he's unusually stupid and unusually corrupt. And therefore, Ben-Hadad will not accept even this tribute, this gold and silver from Ahab. And what we see is going to happen very soon is war. Now, Israel had been very wealthy before the famine, but there's been a three-and-a-half-year famine that's come about because of Israel's rebellion. And this famine has totally taken away the economic base of Israel. You know, prior to the famine, Ahab could not imagine being humbled like this before Ben-Hadad. But now it seems he doesn't have any choice. War is about to come, and from a human point of view, it looked like Israel is utterly doomed. Verse 13, And behold, a prophet came to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. 
According to God's word given through this unnamed prophet, the whole point of the battle is that Ahab will know that I am the Lord. The promised victory is not to enhance Ahab or even to protect Israel. It is to demonstrate the absolute sovereignty of Yahweh who will defeat Syria and the Syrian gods. Now, as I pointed out last week, the expression, you shall know, is singular here. Uh, that becomes significant because the Lord is saying, Ahab, this message is for you. Uh, at least right here, this is not about convincing large groups of people out of Israel or the nation as a whole that I am Yahweh. It is about you, Ahab, the most wicked king in all of Israel's history. I am going to win this battle on your behalf so that you, Ahab, will know that I am Yahweh. Do you get how amazing that is? The astonishing grace that the Lord is showing to this wicked king of Israel? The Lord isn't saying, I'm acting so that this scattered group of people in Israel shall know. I am doing this so that you, Ahab, shall know that I am the Lord. Now, it's very hard to know how much confidence Ahab puts in the word of this prophet. He does do what the prophet says, but frankly, his situation was so desperate, he might have been saying, why not? What do I have to lose? Right? I'm going to get wiped out in battle anyway. Let's do it his way. And so he asked the prophet, by whom? And the prophet responds, thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. Now that may not strike you at all because you're not really thinking in terms of servants of governors and districts, but here's the thing to realize. They're not military people. In fact, as Dale Ralph Davis points out, these young fellows may not have had any prior military training at all. What's God doing? God isn't saying, here's a brilliant strategy that you will implement with vigorous tactics. And if you pull it off just right, you're going to win. What he's actually doing is arranging the battle so that these completely inexperienced young men, not trained, experienced soldiers, are going to lead this tiny group of Israelites in the battle so that when he delivers the Syrians into their hands, it'll be clear that they didn't win, that God won on their behalf. Right? That's the whole point. You're going to see that in a number of places throughout the history of Israel. God intentionally makes it clear that it is not the power of human beings that win the battle so that he will get the glory and the people will learn to trust him. Then Ahab said, Who shall begin the battle? He answered, You. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. And after them, he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. Must have come as a surprise to Ahab that the Lord wanted him to start the battle against a much larger foe. Uh, I wonder if the Lord is trying to stretch Ahab here a bit. right? Because by getting Ahab to be active... To have to be the one that steps out, 
After the victory, he's sort of training Ahab, you can trust my word. If you act on my word, I will act on your behalf. That is, the Lord very well might be trying to lead Ahab to genuine faith. John Woodhouse puts it like this. Ahab, you have the promise of God. Now get to work in believing obedience. Here's an interesting connection. You notice how many soldiers the Israelites have? 7,000. Now, one of the things that's significant about this is you're going to hear in a moment that they're going to kill 100,000 Syrians in battle. So part of it is it's just a really small group. But why 7,000? Well, a very famous Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, suggests it's because on Mount Sinai, the Lord had told Elijah that he's committed to keeping 7,000 who will not bow the knee to Baal. I think that's an interesting connection. Now, Professor Brueggemann is not suggesting that every single member of this 7,000 people that is going out to fight for Israel is, in fact, a true believer in Yahweh. But he's identifying the fact that they are a remnant. They're not the whole deal. And God is saying, yes, my commitment is simply to keep a remnant in Israel, but I am capable of delivering through the few every bit as much as I am capable of delivering through the many. Indeed, as our Lord had previously told Gideon, if too many people go out into battle, the people will end up imagining that they won the battle through the power of their own might. And therefore, I need to reduce your army to make it clear that the battle belongs to the Lord. Uh, This is a good thing for us to remind ourselves of. I was very tempted here tonight to direct this to you young people. So young people, do listen up. But the honest truth is you're going to need to remind yourself of this when you're as old as I am. This is something we all need to hear. We are all naturally tempted to think that we're going to serve God out of our strength. And so you think as you grow up, you know, you guys, are, many of you are very, very bright and talented. You have parents that love you. You're going to get good educations and you're going to end up maybe getting good jobs and being successful in business or becoming the governor of a state and so on. And it's very tempting to think that once I have that sort of worldly power and success, I can then turn and use that power and success to minister on behalf of Jesus. But you understand that's dangerous because it'll make it seem like it was partly due to you and partly due to God. And God specializes in working through the weak. See, it's not that we don't need strength. We just don't need our strength to engage in ministry. We minister in the power of the Lord. Uh, Let me address that to the older people as well. Uh, We're just natural planners. Many of you have business experience and executive responsibilities, and so you've got a, a problem to take on in terms of spreading the gospel in our communities or engaging in some particular ministry project, and you're naturally going to say, what are my resources? And you're going to look and see holes in those resources and say, well, we don't have this and we don't have that, but if we had this, we could really pull something off. Or perhaps because God has blessed us so much, you go, look, we have a lot. But in either case, we're looking at things. And God is saying, lift your eyes to heaven. See, it's not as though if you get the plans exactly right and you get all the resources lined up, 
you're somehow going to advance the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God only advances in one way. My word and the power of my spirit, right? I do all the work. I get all the glory. You get all the grace. Don't imagine that you need to work out of your own power. As the Lord said to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Beloved, this is the only way that the kingdom of God ever truly advances. Now, while we cannot see any good reason why the Lord should grant Ahab a dramatic, dramatic victory, he is, after all, the worst king in the history of Israel, and the people are hard-hearted toward God, we can see every reason why the Lord would want to give Ben-Hadad defeat. Ben-Hadad is a horrible, corrupt, self-absorbed king. Look at verses 16 through 18 with me. Verses 16 through 18. And they went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths. He and the 32 kings who helped him, the servants of the governors of the districts went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, men are coming out of Samaria. He said, well, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they have come out for war, take them alive. So Ben-Hadad is drinking himself drunk on the verge of battle. He's drinking himself drunk along with the 32 kings who are also commanding the army under him. Um, let me just say, this is not how we train officers at West Point to get ready for battle. He's a horrible, self-absorbed, wicked king. By the way, if you're having difficulty figuring out verse 18, this whole thing about taking them alive, that's actually the whole point. This is the ravings of a drunken madman who doesn't care about his own soldiers, his own people, right? Um, you don't tell your soldiers, if they're coming out to kill you, just capture them all, don't worry about it, right? You prepare for battle. But here he is drunk, not only with alcohol, but also with a sense of his own power. Then the most surprising thing happens. Look at verses 19 through 21 with me. So these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts, and the army that followed them, and each struck down his man. The Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Ben-Hadad had mustered such a vast army Defeat wasn't even something they were considering. There was no possibility of anything but absolute victory. What Ben-Hadad had not counted on is that the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, would rouse himself and fight on behalf of Israel. The battle itself is over with just three Hebrew words, a few more in English, and each struck down his man. More details about the fighting are actually unimportant for the story. The outcome is all that matters. Astonishingly, Israel wins. Or we would say more accurately, the Lord wins on behalf of Israel. 
Yet a single battle rarely wins a war, particularly when the king, as he does in this case, escapes perhaps to fight another day. Yet for the moment, all was well. After the Lord dramatically reveals himself to Ahab through battle, he then sends a quiet word to the king. The Lord is not done with trying to impress Ahab with who he is. Verse 22, Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself, and consider well what you have to do, for in the spring the king of Syria will come up against you. Right? The victory in Israel is in fact only provisional. Syria is going to come back. Do you see, however, that the Lord is doing two things? One, he's graciously giving a warning to Ahab, but he's also stretching him a bit more. Unlike going out into battle where, frankly, Ahab didn't have any choices, now Ahab is an extended period of time where he's either going to act on the word of the Lord or he's not. I suggest this is part of the way that the Lord is seeking to build Ahab into someone who takes him at his word. Verses 23 through 25. We shift very quickly, just abruptly, from the prophet coming to Ahab to a Syrian strategy meeting. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, their gods are gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we, but let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings each from his post, and put commanders in their places, and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse, and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. Their gods, that is the Israelite gods, there's only one god, their gods are the gods of the hills. Uh, when you hear that, you go, that's silly, right? You know the Lord. The Lord your God is one. He is king over the whole earth. And yet, maybe there's a bit of a warning in this. Um, you would not talk about their gods being the god of the hills like the pagans do. By the way, that is the way the pagans actually thought. They would think some god might be in charge of the ocean, some other gods might be particularly interested in the hills, the port, some other gods might be out there in the plains. Even those that uh, tended to think of only having one god for their nation tended to think our nation, Egypt, has a chief god, and their nation, Israel, has a chief god, and they're not the same. And you might think that's silly, but I ask you quite plainly to look at your own life and ask, do you believe that God is God of everything in your life, or is he only the God of the hills? Do you know it is a common problem? Not a common problem among pagans. A common problem among Christians where many Christians, actual believers, in their day-to-day -day life treat God as though he's the God of their spiritual lives, but not of their finances, not of their careers, not of their business. You know, out here, I've got to be hard Minded about how I go about my work. But I can go to church on Sunday and be more open to God and he'll take care of my spiritual life. Beloved, that's not the way God is. He is the Lord of everything. 
everything in the universe and everything in our lives. Let me give you just a a really perverse example of how people can become radically divided. You know, um, young men often go to seminary to become trained to become pastors and missionaries. And then we find out that seminary students cheat on exams. I want you to think about how divided that shows their lives are. Uh, They're going to seminary precisely to prepare to minister on Jesus' behalf. And then somewhere along the line, they get so caught up in excelling at their preparation that they cheat on exams in seminary. They, they, They have two different worlds. My world over here where I have a spiritual relationship with God. My imaginary world in the future where I'm going to be so faithful. And my world today where I want to make sure I get an A on my intermediate Hebrew exam, so I cheat. But maybe we ought not to pick on seminary students too much. We ought to apply this standard to our own hearts. Are there places in your own life where you say, I got to take care of that. I got to do that my way, and perhaps even according to worldly standards, rather than my entire life being lived, Horam Deo, before God, and for the glory of God. Well, I'm going to let that one sit with you. I think that's a question we actually have to press into our own lives. And if we do, I think the truth we're going to find is that almost all of us have a little bit of area in our lives where we say, well, my God is a God of the hills. He's not really going to take care of this part. And that's something we have to seek the Lord to change our hearts about. The pagan Syrians, on the other hand, they actually appear quite commendable from one standpoint in their desire to integrate their theology into all of life. You know, know, they don't say we had bad luck. They actually say, using good pagan theology, that perhaps... The gods of the Israelites are gods of the hills, but our gods are powerful too. We just need to fight somewhere else. We fight them in the valleys. Our gods will be triumphant. Their gods are gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But let us fight them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. Now, their theology is entirely wrong. We get that. They are, they are after all, pagans. Nevertheless, these Syrians are actually planning to go back out into war again, and they're trying to fix what they got wrong. And I want you to see that they do recognize that it's not just the God's issue, it's also that their king is a drunken madman, or at least a drunken fool. So when they go out into battle again, they want him to replace these lesser kings who are getting drunk with him, Right? We don't need your drinking buddies leading us into battle. We want you to replace them with professional soldiers. And also the king should rebuild his entire army. Chariot for chariot, horse for horse, soldier for soldier. And when we go out again with this vast army that's more than ten times as big as the Israelite army, surely then we will be victorious. 
This leads to a section that I have titled, That You May Know, Part 2. Uh, I admit that's not the most clever title I've ever come up with, but I want you to see the connection between <clears throat> the Lord telling Ahab, I'm doing this so that you may know, and the same expression, at least in English, in this part of the passage. Verses 26 through 30. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, but the Syrians filled the country. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore I will give you all this multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. But on the seventh day the battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck down the Syrians, a hundred thousand foot soldiers in one day. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. Now, if you were an ancient Israelite looking out on the impending battle, what would you be thinking? The second battle. Would you be thinking that we're doomed? I mean, this army is so much bigger than ours, and they have horses and chariots and everything. We are utterly doomed. Or would you be thinking that last year, the Lord delivered us from just such an army? I suspect you'd be thinking a bit of both, right? That's just human nature. You might be hoping the Lord would do it again, but you'd also be very impressed with what you see with your eyes. Here's the thing. The more you focused on the word of God that came to this prophet, this fresh promise that God will once again deliver you, the more you're going to think about last year's victory and how God's going to do it again. And that's a very practical thing in our own lives. In order for us to go out into this world with faith and confidence, we need to have God's word programming our thinking rather than simply what we can see and certainly rather than what the world is telling us through social media or through television. I have titled this section so that you might know part two, and there are just two things that we need to grasp about this. First, the expression so that you may know that I am Yahweh is not merely that you may know or have a knowledge of the Lord's existence. I am Yahweh is not a statement that says I exist and I am God. Rather, the Lord's point can be summed up if we think back to how he revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. Right? He's, the Lord back then, with Moses' request, is revealing himself in terms of his name, Yahweh, or as we trans translate it, the Lord. Let me give you just a small snippet of it. Think back when the Lord revealed his name to Moses on Mount Sinai. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. See, Yahweh was not simply revealing to Moses that he existed. Moses already knew that. He was revealing to Moses his character. But he is the great and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But he is a God who keeps his commitments, both his commitments to his people, but also his commitments to execute judgment. It's a revelation not simply of God's existence, but of his character, in particular his character for those who trust him. And that is what the Lord is doing in, for Israel in tonight's passage. The Lord had already fully demonstrated on Mount Carmel that he and he alone is God. He had sent the fire. Right? That's the whole point of the contest with the, with the um, prophets of Baal. The Lord has already demonstrated that he and he alone is God. And the Lord had revealed his mercy by sending rain and bringing the famine to an end. But now the Lord is demonstrating that he is the God who acts on behalf of his people that he is a God of steadfast love and astonishing mercy when you realize how hard-hearted his people have been. And the Lord was also demonstrating that he was faithful to his word. He sent specific promises to King Ahab through a prophet, and then he brought those promises to pass. Second, there's an important shift in this passage. They told you last week and again tonight, in verse 13, that phrase that you shall know is in the singular. The Lord is focusing on making known to Ahab his character for, on behalf of his people. Now at the end of the passage, it's in the plural. The Lord in the first battle was focusing on showing Ahab. Now with the second battle, he's trying to make clear in fact, he is making clear his character, his name, both to the Syrians and also to the Israelites. To the Syrians who say, you know, he's just a god of the hills, well, they're going to have a tough time coming up with a fresh explanation after this battle. And for the Israelites, he's making clear that he is the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who acts with astonishing mercy on behalf of his people. So for two years in a row, the Lord has fought for Israel and he has given them an entirely shocking victory over their vastly larger enemies. And then the foot soldiers of the Syrian army, they flee to Afik, utterly routed. They hope to find a measure of immediate safety within the city walls. By the way, You'll note that there's 7,000 Israelites going out in the battle. There's still 27,000 here fleeing. It's a much larger force. And they flee to Afik, and they look at the city with these great walls, and they say, surely we'll be safe there. Surely we'll be safe. It's a great fortress for us. And yet, once inside, the city walls fall upon them, and 27,000 of the Arameans are trapped under the walls. Presumably most of them, perhaps all of them, are killed. 
Now, we're going to trace out the historical consequences when we return, Lord willing, next week of these battles and how it unfolds in Israel. But I'd like to close this evening by reflecting upon the absolute power of the Lord our God. For the Syrians, this meant utter defeat, first on the battlefield, but intriguingly also in the city. The, the, the remaining soldiers have fled to this, this walled fortress city, and they thought they were safe. And they would have been if Israel alone was chasing after them. But Almighty God was chasing after them. And therefore, those city walls that they thought were going to keep them safe actually became their grave. We rightly celebrate Paul's words in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? What we need to remember is that phrase can be reversed. If God is against us, who can possibly be for us? This means that the most important thing to get right in life is to be God's friend rather than God's enemy. Um, you young people are going to have difficulty because there's so much going on in tonight's passage. You're not going to remember a lot of things. This is one to remember. The most important thing for you in this life is for you to be God's friend rather than God's enemy. When by God's grace we become his friends, then the infinite power of God becomes a great comfort and encouragement for us, even in the most dire of circumstances. Phil Riken says it well, an unlimited God gives hope for the work of missions. Other world religions can seem like Ben-Hadad and his 32 kings to us. How will the gospel ever penetrate into these Arabic lands that are dominated by Islam? How will the good news about Jesus Christ ever reach the Hindus and the Buddhists of Asia? How will salvation ever come to the skeptics of Europe and the hedonists of North America? These things could never happen if God had his limitations. But God is unlimited. He is the God of the valleys as well as the hills, of the east as well as the west, of the Arab as well as the Jew. The unlimited power of God gives us hope for victory over our own sin. The unlimited power of God gives hope for healing in broken relationships. The unlimited power of God gives hope for all the impossibilities of life. No matter how high the hill, God rules on that hill. No matter how deep the valley, God rules in the valley. He is the unlimited God. And this is the God whom we worship. Amen.